0: Welcome to The Padres Chair, a commentary on real-life issues that can take many of us to a breaking point. Presented by Dr. Tim Schroeder, The Padres Chair provides insight, hope, and encouragement from the perspective of time-proven truths found in the Bible. In this six-episode podcast series titled Insurmountable Odds, Tim addresses the unusual circumstances surrounding COVID-19, economic hardship racial tension, injustice, and the honest challenge we all face of knowing how to live well and honorably in 2020. Here's Tim.
1: I was a young pastor facing one of the first real theological challenges of my career. The situation was this. Half our city was on strike. The economy had ground to a halt. Hundreds of families were unable to pay rent or even buy groceries and the desperation level was high. In an attempt to foster some kind of breakthrough, the local ministerial called a day of prayer for the whole community. Churches everywhere opened their doors and called people to come in for special prayer to ask God for a breakthrough in the employment stalemate. At noon on the specified day, I stood at the back door of our sanctuary, greeting parishioners as they came to pray. I remember it as if it was yesterday. One gentleman came in, shook my hand, and just before going to the altar to pray, he passionately said to me, Pastor, we have to pray that God will break those evil unions. They're destroying our lives and our city. With that, he went forward and knelt at the altar. It was only moments later, a second parishioner arrived. He too shook my hand, and with just as much passion, he said, Pastor, we need to pray that God will break those greedy corporations. Their greed is killing us. And with that, he went forward and knelt at the altar, right beside the first gentleman. There I stood at the back, and my prayer was that those two gentlemen would engage only in silent prayers, thinking to myself as they stood there that if they were to pray out loud, this could be the first fist fight to ever erupt out of a prayer meeting. That experience left me with one overwhelming conclusion. It's sure a tough job being God. There you had two devout, sincere, faithful men kneeling side by side, praying in total opposition to each other. It reminded me of my childhood when I would attend prayer meetings hosted by my dad in a small farming community and prayer requests would get shared around the circle, and one lady would ask for beautiful sunshine for her daughter's wedding and and the picnic that would be the next day. And then the next request would come from a farmer pleading with God to send what he called showers of blessing to refresh the thirsty soil. How does God give everyone what they want? Short answer, he doesn't. The underlying issue revealed by those not uncommon experiences is that we all, every one of us, tend to view life first and foremost through the lens of how things impact us. In fact, it's a rare, mature individual who's mastered the ability to take themselves out of the equation and view a much larger picture. This whole scenario brings us to the rather challenging theological truth to which I alluded in episode one, and which I believe is at the heart of this whole story of Gideon, to to the extent that I believe it's the main reason this story is preserved for us. And it forms the core of this episode. Here it is. Sometimes God is up to something that involves and impacts us, but is not about us. Sometimes he's up to something that involves and impacts us, but which isn't about us. Just a few days ago, I was listening to a talk by one of Canada's more insightful preachers, uh, Bruxy Cavey, who was unpacking the story of another Old Testament character, a guy named Jacob, and he phrased this same concept this way. Jacob needed to learn to decentralize himself from the story. It was about something bigger than him. I'm convinced that that concept is not only the core ingredient to the story of Gideon, but that it is also one of the most demanding challenges every one of us face in our own personal growth and development. Why is it so challenging? Because it confronts our ego on every side. It leaves nothing undisturbed. Let me give you the gist of the text we're going to study today, this part of the story, And then we'll unpack a few of the angles from which our ego gets confronted. If you've been following the series, you know the setting by now. Israel was being abused by Midian. Every year for seven, Midian had come and pillaged and ravaged and abused Israel until Israel finally broke and called out to God for help. And God heard their cry and he sent an angel to commission Gideon to lead the revolt against Midian. But Gideon didn't think he was up to the task. So the angel finds him hiding in a wine press, and the entire first part of the story involves the angel convincing Gideon that he really could take on this challenge. And against all odds, he does, beginning by destroying his own family's altar to Baal and the fertility cult that was attached to it. So with Gideon now convinced and with his own house in order, we arrive at the launching point of his challenge to overthrow Midian. And Gideon needs to assemble an army. And we come face to face with what I think is one of the more intriguing stories in the Bible. Gideon sounds the trumpet, he hires a recruiting agency, and 32,000 men respond, ready to take up the fight. 32,000! Not bad for a first recruitment effort. And then it happens. Judges chapter 7, God looks at this huge response, and he says to Gideon, verse 2, Hey, Gideon, you got too many men. I can't deliver Midian into their hands, or they'll boast against me, saying, My own strength has saved me. If I go with 32,000 men, the men are going to think that it was because of them and that it was all about them. Remember our theological principle? Sometimes God's up to something that involves and impacts us, but isn't about us. So, God devises a new plan. He says to Gideon, I I want you to make an announcement. Stand up before the men and tell them that whoever is scared should just go home. Now, here's where a little historical note is helpful. At the outset of the story, we were told that there were so many Midianites that it was impossible to count them. And that they also had the newest, most effective, versatile military equipment on the market. They had a brand new invention known as the camel. Now, you might not think that's such a big deal, but if you're a soldier on foot trying to fight against a soldier who's up on a camel, you're dead. The early verses of Judges chapter 6 make a huge deal of simply describing just how overpowering Midian was. So Gideon stands up, he makes the announcement, anybody who's scared, you go ahead and go home. 22,000 out of the 32,000 recruits headed home. Two out of every three quit on the spot. If you're Gideon, now you've got a problem. Then God does something even more unbelievable. Chapter 7, verse 4, God says to Gideon, hey, guess what, Gideon? You've still got too many soldiers. One would expect God to be found consoling Gideon on the loss of two-thirds of his army before the first shot was ever fired. But instead, God says, good, they're gone. Now let's pare it down just a little more. Why? Because I'm up to something here. And it's not about you, Gideon. And it's not about them. It's about me. And I want everyone to know that I'm doing something, and it'll impact you, and it'll involve you. But it's not about you. So God devises a plan to thin out the army even more. He says, go down to the river, take the men down to the river and have them drink and just watch how they do it. Watch who scoops water with their hands and who puts their faces right down in the water and laps it up. So Gideon does what he's told, and 9,700 men get right down on their knees, put their face in the creek, and slurp up the water, while only 300 scoop up the water into their hands. Now, th- th- you've got to understand, there was no instruction manual telling the men how they were supposed to drink. This was just an observation to see how they did it. And Gideon watched, and God watched, and God said, perfect. Send the 9,700 who put their face in the water home. And then comes the clincher, verse 7. With the 300, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Three hundred. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Not at all. Because God says, I'm up to something. And although it involves you and impacts you, this really isn't about you at all. It's all about me. Okay, that's the story. I indicated that the principle behind it is one of the most demanding challenges to growth and maturity you'll ever encounter, because it confronts our ego on all sides. Let's take a closer look at that. First, it challenges your sense of self-sufficiency. This is so crucial an element to a relationship with God that personally, I don't think you can have a relationship with God until this one is addressed. You can disagree with me on that point if you want, but you do yourself a favor to really, really think it through. It's, if not impossible, then exceedingly difficult to put your life into the hands of God if you're convinced you can do just fine on your own. The story of Gideon is both definite and dramatic on this point. Gideon has the army set and ready to go. You've got Israel on one side, Midian on the other. They're about a half a dozen kilometers apart. They're just waiting for the order to attack. And God says to Gideon, and I'm repeating this on purpose, verse 2, Gideon, you got too many men. Too many? Gideon was the underdog by a lot. God says, no, no, too many. Because when this is over, I don't want there to be any doubt as to why Israel won. I don't want there to be any chance for Israel to think that they did it on their own. They did it by themselves. And that is the heart of the story. God wants it perfectly clear that this is his act, that he's up to something that they could never do on their own. Now, at the risk of delving too deeply into detail, let me give you the actual numbers. When this whole whole ordeal was over, they did a count You'll find this in chapter 8, verse 10. If you do the math and add it up, you'll discover that there were about 15,000 Midians left after the battle and about 120,000 had been killed in the battle. In other words, Midian and their allies had 135,000 soldiers plus camels. And Gideon had 300 men one foot. And that is the point. That's why faith is so hard. It involves trusting God for something you could never pull off on your own. Faith flies right in the face of self-sufficiency. A number of years ago, one of my nieces went on a skydiving excursion. Now, why anyone would jump out of a perfectly good airplane is a mystery to me, but she did, and I got to watch the video. First they had a little bit of instruction time and then they got into the airplane and the instructor coached them and we could see on the video as they wiggled out of the plane they hung on to the wing strut and then as the video continued to roll I noticed that the instructor stepped right to the edge of the airplane and that he was wearing a pair of great big boots. And after watching the video, I said to my niece, like, what was with the big boots this guy had on? Oh, she said, about half the group, when they got out there hanging onto the wing strut, wouldn't let go. So he just kicked their fingers loose. Pretty obvious point, isn't it? You can't skydive unless you're willing to let go of the airplane. You can't fully exercise faith in God until you're willing to let go of yourself and what you are able to accomplish on your own. So here's something to ponder, and I mean to really ponder. Is there anything about the way you're living today that would change if you didn't even claim to believe in God? Are you doing or attempting anything at all in your life that you can't do in your own strength? You see, faith always confronts self-sufficiency. But that's not the only angle. Next, you'll notice that this theological principle challenges self-centeredness. Now, again, I'm fully aware I'm reading the same verse over and over for you today, and I'm doing it with no apology because it's that important. But this time it's the last line of chapter 7, verse 2, where where God says, I can't deliver Midian into their hands. He's saying this about the army of 32,000, or Israel would boast against me saying my own strength has done this. My own strength has saved me. God puts his finger on the innate tendency of every single one of us to make every story about us. And sometimes he has to take extreme measures to convince us otherwise. If you think I'm overstating this, let me just ask you. When you're part of a group and someone takes a picture of the group, when you receive the photograph, who's the first person you look for? We all do it. And I guarantee that if the other 26 people in the picture look perfect, but we have our eyes closed, we will say that's a terrible picture. There's something seated deeply inside every one of us that causes us to believe it's always about us. I'm, I'm chaplain to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. I've been significantly involved in the world of policing for more than 30 years which I tell you simply to explain that what I'm about to say is based on the fact that I have spent thousands of hours in the front seat of a police car. And this still causes me to smile every time it happens. When you are driving in a marked police car and other drivers first see you, they take their foot off the gas and touch their brakes nine times out of ten. It's totally amusing to watch all the brake lights go on when you get noticed. You, you, You know it's true, you do it too. You just assume it's about you. Even if you're not speeding, you slow down. And the truth is that nine times out of ten, the police officer's on something totally different. It's another call. He might be looking for a missing person, might be responding to a break-in or an accident. Could be a multitude of reasons that car is on the road that has nothing to do whatsoever with you. And yet your first instinct puts you in the center of the story. And God says, if there's one thing I need to break Israel of... It's at this point. And if there's one thing he needs to break you and me at, it's at this point. I I said a few minutes ago, I believe the core concept of this story is probably the biggest challenge to personal growth and maturity there is. That's no exaggeration. This principle, it'll affect your marriage. It'll affect your relationships at work. It'll impact how easily you get discouraged when things don't go your way. There's almost no area of life untouched by whether or not you're able to get over yourself. Learning that you're not the center of the story is a massive sign of maturity. And gaining the humility to realize that it's actually all about God, that's a game breaker. So here's an exercise. I, I just challenge you to participate in this. See how often you catch yourself in a day. Thinking something is about you that in reality has very little to do with you. Just try it. See how often you put yourself in the center of a story that isn't about you at all. Learning to make that distinction is a significant growth area and mark of maturity. Okay, one last area confronted by this principle. It challenges self-motivation. A moment ago, I said this impacts how easily you get discouraged when things don't line up the way you wish they would? Well, there's a definite flip side to that. Just take one more look at Gideon and God. In the middle of chapter 7, this is just before the battle, God says to Gideon, Are are you still scared? That's what's known as a rhetorical question. I mean, the odds were 300 to 135,000. Of course he was scared. So God says, Take your servant and just sneak down to the Midian army camp and eavesdrop there for a little bit. So Gideon does. And the text is alive with vivid detail. It says in verse 12 that the Midianites and Amalekites and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley. They were thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. It's quite a scene. Showing Gideon that is hardly a technique I would use to motivate him to attack. And once again, that is the point. God wants Gideon to be completely overcome with his own inadequacy and completely motivated by his deep faith in God. So God says to Gideon, go down there with your servant, eavesdrop. And he does. And he sees these overwhelming odds, but then he hears... One Midian soldier telling another about a dream he had the previous night and how a round loaf of bread came rolling down the hill and smashed their tent. And the guy's friend plays dream interpreter and he says, that's got to be that that Gideon guy is going to smash us dead. And Gideon comes face to face with the reality that God was doing something that Gideon wasn't even involved in. And he just gets to be a part of it. And few things are more motivating than understanding that you just to get to be involved in something God is up to. Sometimes God's up to something that involves and impacts us, but isn't about us. Figuring that out is one of the most empowering lessons in life, but it's not learned easily. It challenges our sense of self-sufficiency. It uproots our self-centeredness and it interrupts pretty much every aspect of our lives. Yet once it's learned, it motivates and inspires and encourages us to engage things we'd otherwise never dream possible. When we let God be God and play our assigned role, there's a freedom found in no other place. Well, the stage is all set. Next episode, it's time for action.
0: Thank you for joining the Padres Chair. We hope that you walk away from this moment with lots to think about and some deeply ingrained hope. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode.